work does expand to the amount of time that you allow it. But I deem work done when there's nothing else that I can do to make it better. That there's nothing else that I know of that I can make this better. Right. Welcome to the game where we talk about how to get more customers, how to make more per customer, and how to keep them longer, and the many failures and lessons we have learned along the way. I hope you enjoy and subscribe. As you were talking, I was just, for whatever reason, I just started thinking about your Twitter workflow, which I think is probably the most interesting to you because you're you're right. It's the only right? one I do. Yeah, yeah. yeah, the only one that I'm directly posting. Yeah. Yeah, you, yeah. you taking a poop while you're doing it, or like, what do you? What, no, you, actually, um, where do these thoughts come from? <laughs> so the two two places. One is I wake up with them. Yeah. So I usually wake up with like three or four tweets in my head, and I won't usually even get out of bed until I put them in. That is nuts. And so yeah, so like you'll see all the, like a lot of my tweets are front loaded for the day because but they're super them. refined too. I think Twitter low key is the single greatest tool for learning how to write. Yeah. Because it forces you to have word concision and you get immediate feedback. Mm -hmm. And so you like, like, we mean hits feel so good. But like right? just, <laughs> just the feedback on the language, yeah. you know what I mean? You get yeah. to learn really quickly and it's based on your words. Mm -hmm. So I think there like, there are two things that have improved my writing more than anything. Hemingway, the app mm. and Twitter. Like the two things that have improved my writing the most. You use Hemingway to tweet? No, no, no. But like okay. when I wrote, like when I write the book. Yeah. That has helped me and and Twitter. Got it. Um, but you said so the so from a and the, the second place that I do it is when things come up naturally during the day. And yep. so I'll say something on a meeting and, I, and like literally like the team would be like, that's a tweet, and then yep. I'll just I'll just fire it off. Yeah. Like, but there's there's no um there's no cadence, there's no ghostwriters, there's no like you'll also see two days in a row where I won't tweet at all. So yep. like it's Got just it. whatever. And some days I'll tweet like eleven times. Yeah. Like it's just if I'm in the zone. Makes sense. Um I think there's a lot of wisdom there. I, I just I think there's a lot of beauty in the written word. And if you can articulate yourself that way, then it's like your next level. Well, dude, I had a guy, um, a really, a really successful uh tech entrepreneur. So he had had two unicorn exits. So mm -hmm. like really successful, hit me up on Twitter and we hopped on a Zoom call. And he was like, dude, so what's your Twitter strategy? Uh, are you like in one of these engagement groups? And I was like, no. And he's like, oh, dude, I won't tell anybody. Like, just like, what's the, <laughs> like, what's the, what's the playbook? And I was like, I tweet shit as I think of it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and yeah. He just like, he asked like three or four times, like he just wouldn't believe it. I'm like, yeah. that's what it is. And some, and you'll notice because the tweets are usually like themed because yeah. it's just like top of mind. So if I'm feeling, because usually I'm tweeting to myself and that's what people mm -hmm. don't get. Like my tweets are, me trying to bang mm, myself in the mm. head and be like dude like be fucking patient or like relax yep. like you know whatever it is or like you don't need to care about this person's opinion yep. and so like they're so violent because i'm in the moment of discomfort yep. and i write that to myself to get over the moment and move yep. on with my day dude that's so fast it's like what we'll talk about in, in you your 80 year old self mentoring you but it's yeah. it's it it's weird how we use it in our own like you use it to beat yourself beat yourself up or no no sorry i use it to beat myself up sometimes right yeah. you're talking to yourself just to like it's like reminders for yourself right and gary is like to motivate people right yeah. so it's just interesting but okay so how does now the first book that you released 100 million dollar offers you sold what how many copies i think it's about 500,000 500 that's a lot right um like what i saw like 12,000 positive five star reviews or something just across 16 16,000 yeah. okay that's i crazy. just saw it that's why yeah I no advertising, right? This, this, by the way, let me just rewind for a second. The guy that got on a Zoom call with you, he wouldn't believe it. It's like when your shit's so good, you don't need to game the system. That is already the game. Too good to fail. You that's know what the, I mean? Like that's the line. Like, yeah. Too good to fail. Yeah. I had a, I had a, a roommate of mine who said that. I was like, what? Because this is way back when I had my gyms, mm -hmm. um, and he, I only had one gym. So like way back in the day, yeah. 
and he had an online business. So it was like way early, decade yeah. ago, right? Yeah. And I was like, so what's your strategy? For, and he was like, he was doing like blogging SEO stuff back mm -hmm. then. And he said that statement to me. And he was like, I don't do anything else. He's like, I just make sure that my articles are so exceptional that people share them. Mm -hmm. And he would spend two weeks on one article, but then they would crush and get shared all over the place. And now he has a business probably worth like 60, 70 million now. Wow. And we were just like roommates in a house, like just right. Great. Yeah. That's awesome. Okay. So back to the book. So yeah. you did the first one. What did you, I mean, it's a labor of love first. Anybody that's written a book before, you know, Horrible. it's a labor of love. And plus use you like 10 X, 20 X just to yeah. make sure it's damn good. First yeah. book was amazing, right? Yeah. What made you so quickly want to go to the next one? And what are you looking to get out of it? It, man, writing books is like such not a good use of time. Yeah. Um, as much like it's, it's, it's like, it's something it's, it's honestly like a guilty pleasure. Like I, it takes too much of my time and I enjoy it. Cause a lot of people don't know this about my background, but like I was the vice as vice editor of the, um, of the newspaper. I was the editor in chief of the literary magazine. I got a writing scholarship going into college. Like I've been writing a long time and mm -hmm. I enjoy writing. Um, and so this is the only thing that I get to marry my two loves where like I love writing and I love business. Yeah. And so it's like, it's my like chief form of expression. That's why Twitter is kind of like a microcosm of that. Um, but the point of $100 million leads was to answer one question. And uh, the first one, $100 million offers answered the question, what do I sell? Leads answers the question, who do I sell it to? And so most people, once they have something to sell, they're like, okay, now what? And this book pretty much walks you through how to get your, I mean, basically this book can get most people to a few million dollars a year. Um, that, I mean, that's it. And so I see this, like the books are my absolute long game because the amount of guys that I see every single day that stop me, like when we're walking, who are like, dude, I'm 21, I've got my thing, I'm doing you know, 70 grand a month, and you're on my vision board, as soon as I cross a million dollars in profit, like I'm hitting you up. And so like, there are so many of those guys right now who are like incubating that I know in three years, five years, 10 years are gonna hit that, and I just wanna be the first person they call. Right. And that's it, and but, like that's a long, it's my longest game. Yeah. Like the, the books are my absolute, which is why I spend so much time on them because if they're not going to be good enough to still be referred to and sold in a decade, there's no point in me writing it today. Yeah. Like what would I get the book launch money? Like it costs me more money to put the event on than I'm probably going to make from the book. Right. The, you know what I mean? And the media team, my, my losing money media team. Um, no, you guys, are, you guys are awesome. Um, Writing a book to make money off of a book is possibly the worst monetization vehicle of all time. It's a physical product. You have a 16-week lead time. Mm -hmm. You have to manage inventory accounts. You make no money on it. You have to sell it on a platform that takes 80% of the money, or you have to go to a publisher that also takes 80% of the money. Like, yeah. there's no winning from a money... Like, yeah. the percentage of... Like, the offers is top, top 100 Audible books still on Amazon two years later and top 1000 physical books. Wow. There's there's like 60 there's I think 60 million titles. There's 6 or 60 million. That's a big difference obviously, but a lot of yeah. books on Amazon. And so it's a 0.0001% book and like it does I mean it makes money, but like it makes less than any of my portfolio companies yeah. to give like a, yeah. a, a reference of scale. Yeah, I mean you're not retiring from Right now. Yeah. I mean I, if I spent no money, you know what I mean like yeah, yeah, yeah. Any of the companies we have makes more money in the book. Right. Yeah. <laughs> makes sense. I mean, but it's still, it's like, it lives on forever. And that's cool. Yeah. And I think that's, that's like the, like, if I were to die tomorrow, the thing I'd be most proud of is the books. 
because I knew that that would be the thing that would outlive me the longest. Yeah. Which is interesting. We'll come back to the book in a second, but I think you talked about how you don't believe in the concept of, of legacy, yeah. right? Um, kind of is your legacy. In the formal sense. Yeah, yeah. I don't believe in individual legacy. Yeah. Um, Can you expand? I do, yeah. yeah. So like, I don't believe in your name being passed on for thousands of generations. I mean, like to prove the point, do you know what your great, great, great grandfather's name was? Probably no. not. Right. And so like, that's not even that many generations back. And so to have like the ego and the thinking that like you're somehow like your progeny are, and even if you somehow became king of the world yep. and you did have that, they wouldn't know who you were. Yep. You would just be like another historical figure that they could then trace their bloodline back to. And then if you do the math on how related you are to them, like if you go, you know, 0.5 to the eighth, I mean, you're, you're not related. You're just another human. And in yep. that, to that degree, then it, then relation generalizes to all of humanity. And then you just become yep. a humanitarian, in which yep. case I am uh, pro legacy from that perspective. And I think that the ultimate legacy is education because all of us here are sitting here in a house full of inventions that other people that we don't know invented and made our lives better. And that I think is like the ultimate legacy for humanity is that we just fall and someone picks up the baton where we left off and yep. carries it. But like, I think the ultimate wasted life is one where you learn lessons and pass it on to no one and yep. force someone to quite truly reinvent the wheel. You know, Naval has, um, so the book he recommends the most is the, I think it's the beginning of infinity or something okay. like that. Yeah. David Deutsch or whatever. I read it. So th this dude, and it's like a super dense read, um, <laughs> but like, I haven't completed it, but this guy's like, you know, what is wealth mm -hmm. and wealth is knowledge to your point you just said it's education right like that is the thing that continues to compound beyond you and me it lasts beyond money yeah and like that is what should matter like how do we make people wealthy we educate them and if you think about the the reverse of that too if you had a lot of money and you gave it to someone how would you guarantee that they lose the money you have them completely uneducated and completely mm -hmm. ignorant and so there's a there's i think it's sanskrit so it's a super old like ism but it says, if you have a bad son, there's no point in saving money. If you have a good son, there's no point in saving money. Because if you have the good son, he'll take care of himself. If you have a bad son, he's going to squander everything you have, mm -hmm. which basically means that at no point does it ever matter what you accumulate because either you passed on education, yeah. in which case they never needed you to begin with, or you pass on no education and they're yeah. going to lose everything you had. That's so good. But I, this is the thing. You look at all the, the the wealthy people. They can't help themselves. They have to give it to your kids. And we don't have kids yet, right? But I suspect if we have kids, right, it's just like you probably end up giving it to the kids, yeah. right? Well, I think um, I really like thinking of like, I mean, and I'll probably be different when I have children, but I don't know how different. People will be surprised. Yeah. Um if like if I wanted to create a human that had certain character traits, I would then think, okay, what are the what are the experiences someone has to go through to have that happen? Mm -hmm. And I would try and reverse engineer as many of those as I could. And like having uber wealth throughout your entire life and having a guaranteed ease of of eating and living and whatever is a great way to guarantee not guarantee is a great way to increase the likelihood that someone does not turn out good. Yeah. And so I wouldn't want to spend the rest of my life after they're twenty with a bunch of people I didn't like. And so I would rather have them suffer to become the types of people that I'd want to spend the rest of my life with. I'm with you, man. It's, uh, I mean, let's, let's rewind to our childhoods real quick. Cause we, it's, you know, for me, tiger mom, right. It's, it's difficult. You're never good enough. Right. Yeah. And so I think similar kind of story for you. Um, do you want to talk about maybe how your childhood shaped you into who you are? Because I feel like there's part yeah. of you that's really compassionate, but yeah. then there's the other side that's really tough on yourself and sometimes yeah. tough on other people too. Yeah. Well, as a quick side note on this, um, I think a lot because I've had this question in different forms on a couple of podcasts about like the struggle growing up, et cetera, and how that creates success now. Mm. But I really think it's 
people suffer during childhood. Some people are successful and some people aren't. Like there's just as many people or not even way more people who have terrible childhoods and then don't do anything out of it. It's true. And so I don't, to, to point back to a terrible childhood and say, not that, that I had a terrible childhood, but like to tough times yeah. and say that that is why I am here. Mm -hmm. The why is really difficult and I don't think anyone can answer the question. I just know that I do these things because I've been reinforced for doing them. And so that's like the only rule or law of humanity that I see is that you either rewarded or punishment punished yeah. for doing the things that you've done yeah. and you either avoid things you've been punished for in the past and, and, and you keep doing things you're rewarded for. And so like I keep working harder and harder on things because my minimum standard continues to rise because the more I raise that minimum standard, the better the things that I have are and the more reinforced I am for working hard on the things that I work on. Which brings me to a quote over here. Most people keep fighting the same boss, but the boss is being able to stick with it. Yeah. And you had to learn that the hard way, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, here, I'll give you another one over here. I'll give you your, your moseyisms. Is that a thing? <laughs> moseyisms? Um, to do something epic, you have to convince yourself to do the same thing for a long period of time without telling yourself that you're smarter than you are. This talk that you did, um, I think the talk the, I'm paraphrasing here was how you're, th this will ch change how you think about money or something sure. like that, right? Um, but this talk was really about focus at the end of the day. And you went to yogurt land and yeah. decided that you had to redo your talk and Focus to talk on focus. What, what happened there? Yeah, and all these guys who were coming up. To, so I, so I got, so I was supposed to speak at this event, and I had already finished the the presentation. And part of the reason that I don't speak very much is because on stages, um, one, I don't like how people use my face to promote. Because again, associations yeah. I don't want. Yeah. Um, but also because I mean, to just give this to everybody else, like a lot of people will promote with my face, and then people will buy whatever the person who's at the event is selling, right. and I have no association control. or anything and i have no way to i don't have the time to do the due diligence on figuring the person out so like if i speak somewhere it's not because i'm endorsing the person but that being said um i went to the yogurt land and like eight or nine people were in the area for the next day and they sat around us and i spent like 60 minutes talking to all these guys and it became really clear that all of them were distracted they were all doing multiple things trying to like they, they they subscribe to the single fallacy that i think is number one in new entrepreneurs which is the uh i'll see which one works yeah fallacy yeah and the reality is that any of them could work but the only one that will work is the one that you work on and so you have to commit to one of them because it's just it's arrogant to think that you going 25 percent in on four things is because you are competing in a real marketplace against somebody else that's in that space. And to think that your 25% is going to do anything against someone's hundred percent. It's just arrogant. And so, um, and one of the definitions of commitment that I like a lot is the elimination of alternatives. And so if you want to be committed to something, then you have to eliminate alternatives. And some people use, uh, you know, dicadere, which is the Latin root of decide, which just means to kill off, which is like, what are we killing off? And I think, um, it's kind of like pruning a tree. Uh, and when I realized that it's like you have, there's only so much nutrients in the soil, there are only so many minutes in the day, so much literal attention and focus that you can allocate. And if anyone's ever worked on one project for a long period of time, you realize that you start peeling back layers and getting a depth of understanding that you can never get when you're on the surface level, looking at multiple things, you're barely being reactive and setting out fires. You can never make progress yep. and like drive. And I think that like, this is a Warren Buffett quote to, to give the, the goat his, his due. Um, he said the difference between successful people and really successful people is that really successful people say no to almost everything. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that that's, it's just taking me a very long time to learn that. And I continue to repeat it in my tweets because it's still just as hard for me now as it was then. 
It's yeah. because the thing is, is that the opportunities I have to say no to now are things that I would have given my left nut for, you know, <laughs> a decade ago. Uh, and so it's, it's just, it's continue like the bar has continued to rise on what I have to say no to. And it's hard the whole way through. And one of the big unlocks for me has been judging <coughs> myself based on my actions and not my feelings, meaning I can feel impatient, but still do the patient thing. So I might still want this to go faster and be upset yep. that it's not going faster. As long as they don't act on that impulse, I can still be a patient person. Yep. And so to the same degree with focus, I might be interested and love jamming with the guys on like, what if we did this? What if we did that? What if we did that? But as long as I don't say, all right, buy the URL, let's get the bank out set up, let's go. As long as I don't do that, then like we're still focused on the one thing that matters most. Yeah. It, it must be tough because it's you're you're trying to educate people on the pain that you've been through, right? Again, being punched in the gut, yeah. nine things, right? But still, like, I, I don't know about you, but in, in my early 20s, I remember, like, yeah, focus, focus. And I would read, you know, Warren Buffett, Steve, uh, not Steve Jobs, Warren Buffett, um, you know, Bill Gates. Yeah, the, the one thing is focus, right? Like, you know, and but then it's like, no, no, no. But like, I'm better. I'm smarter than that, right? And that You have that quote in here. It's like thinking that you're smarter than you are. So I feel like it's as much as we try to teach people, sometimes it's like they just need to get punched themselves. I think there's a difference between knowing that and knowing how. So like no, going through an experience, unfortunately, teaches you in a different way than knowing that something happens. Or like, I know, I know, I, I know that this works this way. But if I said, like, I know how a business works, but it's like, but you, you know what to do, but you've never done it. And right. so until you've actually done it, you think you know what to do until you go through it. And so I think that's like that experiential knowledge, which is honestly, I think the base of the content, what makes the difference between Ken McElroy's and hopefully our content, yep. which is like people can see a depth of understanding that comes from experience. Like yes. one of my favorite quotes from L.H. Hardwick is, no man within experience is ever at the mercy of a man with an opinion. Right. And until someone's done it, all they have is an opinion. And if you have done it, they are irrelevant. Yeah. Like someone's like, well, it doesn't work that way. I'm like, have you done it? And they're like, no. And I'm like, your opinion does not matter. <laughs> Dude, I, I just remember uh, two, three years ago, one of the guys that um, that was leading my marketing team, he's like, so we'd have this um, engagement tool called 15.5 and you could just, uh, here's how the week went. You know, Here's what I'm learning right now. And every week it's like watching Hermosi videos, watching Hermosi videos. And this is when you had, this is when you were just like maybe 20,000 subscribers yeah, right, or whatever, yeah. right? But it was because of the depth of the content that yeah. you have where it was just so good. And then I started watching it and it's, it's like, then it's like all the thumbnails on YouTube started, the recommendations become, started becoming yeah. you. I was like, holy shit. And that's how you start to compound, right? Because yeah. it's, it's good stuff. Yeah, I appreciate it. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's um, it's I think it's being it's being really honest with yourself about you know we have the investors circle of competence right yep. I think there's a content circle of competence that you have to know if it's not in this circle I shouldn't talk about it and that's not because of brand and that's not because of any of the fancy stuff it's just because you don't know it mm -hmm. and like anything that you have to add that's outside of the circle of competence will often be a generalization that you heard from someone else right and if it's a generalization from someone else then that's their opinion and not yours. Right. And so we want first principles, first experience type content. And so N equals one, right? Or one of zero content, as we say. Um, and that's the litmus test is like, is it in that, is it, is it something we know from experience? And I, I had this video, I think the, the, the long that I had right before this was my explanation of how to get to 10 million plus a month. Mm -hmm. um, and I talked about, I was like, and I think this is how we get to hundred million a month. Um, I don't know that because I haven't been there yet. But I'm, this is my current plan of how to get there. And somebody commented something, I can't remember what it was, but it's something like, 
uh, well, you have no idea. I can, I, I can coach you on it. Like whatever. Right? <laughs> um, but the thing is, is like it, I will only talk about retrospect. Right. Like I will only talk about things that I have done because I can speak confidently on them. And if mm -hmm. someone says, Jim Launch wasn't a company, it doesn't bother me because it's, yeah. it's like saying like, you didn't have oatmeal for breakfast. I'm like, yeah. I mean, I did. So, okay. And that's, <laughs> that's what, in my opinion, has allowed me to f not suffer from the, the many inevitable con you know, comments, whatever you get from the, the, the masses mm -hmm. of people who don't know you. Um, because if someone says, Hey, Alex, you're short, I know that's not true. Uh -huh. And so it doesn't, it doesn't hit me. The only ones that hurt are the ones that you feel like have an element of truth. And so if there's an element of truth, it means that I probably stepped out of my circle of competence. And I think getting stung outside of my circle has really taught me, at least for me to stay in my world of like, these are the few things yeah. that I know. And that is what I'll talk about. You know, I Interestingly enough, I mean, speaking of circle of competence, I think there's also a circle of competence when it comes to content creation, like you should stick to the format that you understand initially sure. before expanding out, right? And so I really enjoy this, but maybe I'm not the best at, you know, uh, telling long form stories or something sure. like that, right? Um, so I think it's like, it really do whatever works for you. Play your cards. Yeah. 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 Um, so going back to the book, you got this big launch strategy happening right yeah. now. It's like the Super Bowl. Like, yeah. what, what can you tell us about that? What's going oh, on? How much you spend? Yeah, yeah, let's go. tons about it. So um, $100 million offers the first book. I, I'm, the goal with every book was to be a meta book, meaning I wanted to use the book to demonstrate the ideas in the book as proof that the ideas worked. And so $100 million offers how to make offers so good people feel stupid saying no was supposed to in and of itself be an offer so good people would feel stupid saying no. And so I made the book $2 on Kindle and I um, added in a course that most people would sell for one to $5,000 on top of it and made it for free on my site, not behind an opt-in wall, just made it for free for everyone with downloads and everything. Um, and the idea was if it is good enough, people will share it. And that's more or less what ended up happening. And so with $100 million leads, the meta concept is not about the offer. The meta concept within leads is advertising and how to get leads. Right. And so the 24 months that I did post the offers book was all towards the leads book. Hmm. And so the last 24 months was, well, if I'm going to talk about how to build an audience, then I have to build an audience. If I'm going to talk about how to run paid ads, I have to, build, I have to run paid ads. If I'm going to talk about having affiliates, I have to have affiliates. And so there's eight methods of advertising that I talk about in the book. Right. And I use all eight specifically to promote the book to prove that all eight methods work. Ah. And so when we go live at the event, I will break down, here was our affiliate strategy. This is how many affiliates we had. This is how many of you are here from affiliates. This is how, uh, this is our paid, paid, paid ad strategy. These are the scripts I use, which is directly from this page. This is the landing page I use, which is directly from this page. And it got this many of you guys here. I got this much content, which is how many we put out over this period of time. This is the resulting impressions. This is how many of you are here from that. And so I wanted to just give proof that these concepts worked 10 years ago and they work today and they'll work in a hundred years because people won't change. The platforms will, but the principles will remain the same. Yeah. So, I mean, you're basically showing, hey, like, I'm showing you this in the book and I'm meta. This is how it works, right? Yeah. But by the way, for the affiliates, what, what are they getting out of this? I mean, it's a $2 book. Like, well, yeah, yeah, what's yeah. in it for them? Yeah. Um, and actually the, the Kindle on this one is $10 huh? because the point was not 
to be an offer. The okay. point was to be a leads thing. Got it. Right. And the next book will be a meta concept on that. Okay. So every book will have its own yeah. unique thing. Anyways. Um, so with the affiliates, I think of affiliates in kind of two tiers. Uh, now when I make a true affiliate strategy for a business, there's usually three. There's usually first level, which is the base level that everybody starts at. There's the next level, which is an activation point level, which is whatever activation point is for you and your business. You make that the next kicker for their income or whatever the benefit is. And then you have your like top producer level. And so those are usually the best three. And we paid a gazillion dollars to consultants who just only set up affiliate structures. And that's what they use. They're like always three. These are the three. And there you go. There's a nugget for you. Um, let me save you a hundred grand. Yep. Uh, that's how you set up affiliate setups. But with this book, I have two levels. If you don't have a massive audience, bring 10 friends. That's it. So bring 10, 10 people from your company, bring your family, bring your cousins, whatever it is, bring 10 people. And I'll give you two chapters that I'm not releasing with the book. Okay. So that's the, that's the benefit for that level. For the top level, those are going to be people who have audiences, right? Who have email lists, have subscribers, et cetera. And so for them, I wanted it to be more competitive. And so for them at the top 10, I'm going to do an AMA live with their audience with them and they can ask whatever they want. And the reason I chose that specific benefit for them was that if I said, hey, I'm giving a Lamborghini or I'm giving a car to the top 10 people, right? If they go to their audience and say, hey, attend this thing so I can win this car, mm. that's them extracting goodwill from the audience. Right. And I don't want them to do that for me. And so I was like, how can I also use the concepts that I preach for them? And so I made it an AMA so that their audience clicking their affiliate link benefits their audience. Because if I click Johnny's link and we win, then we get the time to do the AMA. And so he doesn't, Johnny or whoever the affiliate is, doesn't extract goodwill for, or withdraw goodwill from their audience by, by promoting my thing. And so that way I wanted it to be an easy thing for people to promote. So it would just be a net benefit. So it didn't have to like work into their promotion calendar or be like, like how, what kind of split am I? Cause there's no financial incentive for the, for this. Mm -hmm. And I also did that cause operationally, Got it. you know, 12,000 is a pain. Um, <laughs> and so it was yep. easier to do it that way. Interesting. I, and these people are willing to promote too, because of all the goodwill that you've built up. And I think that's really interesting and important for people to understand. And probably, um, brand association. Yeah. Like if for sure. Like real time, like that yeah. was the thing that I, I'm still consistently learning and am impressed by how branding works. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I think that was also an element of it. So, and the AMAs that you're doing, you're doing basically 10 separate AMAs? Yeah. AMAs? Okay, 10 separate it. ones. So it. it's totally like their audience. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, that's, and I don't do a lot of these yeah. um, by percentage of requests. And yeah. so for many of them, this is like the only shot that they'll probably have to, to do that. And so I yeah. wanted to make it cool and awesome. Got it. How many hours do you think you put into this launch? How much do you think you've spent so far? <sighs> I've spent a million bucks in cash on the event um, so far. Yeah. Probably more, honestly. I don't even Yeah, it's been probably more. <laughs> um, and then, so right now we have like 405 or 10,000 people registered okay. for the event, which is pretty nuts. It's like seven NFL stadiums. Dude, I imagine attendee attendance rate has to be pretty high too. I hope so. Yeah. Well, you know, I this is the first time, you know, that we've done anything like this big. Um, so yeah, we've spent, spent that much money. And then from a time perspective, this has been, if you include the writing of the book, I mean, it's, I've got 2000 hours into this. Yeah. So if we don't include writing the book, um, the presentation that I'm giving, um, I've spent, I've probably put 200 hours into it. Wow. Okay. Yeah. So, um, I, I will do the work. 
And so I made the presentation and this, and now I feel like I have the process down. So I will share this with you. So I'm a big fan of, uh, outworking your self doubt, right? Okay. Like you, you're never nervous if you're fully prepared. And so I don't want to be nervous for this thing. And if anything, I just want to be excited about it, which I am. Um, but the way I approached it was I made the first version of the presentation and then I presented it and I recorded it. And then I watched the recording with the deck up and I pause it when every time there's a mess up and I fix the deck and then I play, fix, play, fix, play, fix. Um, and then once I have the new fixed one, I go top to bottom in my head and then I go top to bottom, record it out loud, pause, fix, pause, fix, pause, fix. And so right now, um, I do that. I do one full cycle of that every day. Um, and I started preparing wow. for that, um, three weeks out. I don't know if people are, maybe they are seeing this, but from my observation here is that you just mentioned, I will do the work. And I think one of your other quotes was like the work needs doing right. But then, and then you tie it in with really not even a 10 X effort, but to me, it seems like a hundred X effort. Totally. Just people aren't willing to go that far. Yeah. Right. But uh, what's interesting is that like, if you work a hundred times harder, you can sometimes get like a million times the payout. Mm -hmm. And so like the, the top end of work still has disproportionate payoffs. And so I don't even, I don't even like there are diminishing returns, but there's a point where you actually get like outsized returns for the effort. Because like, if you think about it from like a Olympic racing perspective, like if I work, you know, 10 times more than everybody else does, but I get gold and the next guy gets silver, the difference between gold and silver in running is everything, mm -hmm. even though it's the 10th of a second. Right. And so from an absolute perspective, there's diminishing returns. But from a relative perspective, I think you have exponential returns from being the best from right. being number the difference between number one and number two can be you know like uber and lyft like the mm -hmm. difference is 10x uh the size and so i i have now been reinforced enough times of how much more work is required to do something excellent that now i understand it yeah. and i think the one thing that has continued to level up over time for me and this is also for the audience is that like you don't even know how much you can work like you think you know how much you can work until you like really, really work. And like with this presentation, I was like, I will not be the reason this is not good. What do you think changed your perspective, like flipped you into working 100x harder? I think just my standards have gone up. Like I looked at the first presentation I ever gave and it's like, it's embarrassing. I mean, it's truly embarrassing. Yeah. I think it has like 19 slides with like four bullets on each slide. And I remember yeah. being, I remember thinking, man, I spend a lot of time on this. And a lot of time to me back then was like, I spent a day on it, <laughs> like a full day, like yeah. eight hours. Yeah, that's and, still me right now. Yeah, yeah. And, and I think that a little moniker that I have is just count in hundreds. It's like, how many hundreds of hours did you spend on something? Because like when you start counting in hundreds, like the, the depth of understanding of something goes to such a, such a large degree. And it's like, if I were to tell someone to edit a video, right, like a short clip, and I said, hey, um, edit this clip uh, in 30 minutes, right? And give it back to me. And I was like, and they give it back to me. I'm like, okay, I'm not going to edit it yet. If I give you another 30 minutes, could you make it better? And they're usually like, I could make it better mm -hmm. another 30. So I give it back to them. Like, give it back to me another 30. So it gives it back to me another 30. And I say, okay, if I give you two more hours, do you think you'd make it better? There's a point to this. Yep. He's like, yeah, I think I'd make it better. Comes back to me. I say, okay, what if I give you two weeks? Like, well, then I would totally approach it differently. I'd probably restructure the whole thing. Like, mm -hmm. because the the amount of time, sure, work does expand to the amount of time that you allow it. Right. But I deem work done when there's nothing else that I can do to make it better. That there's nothing else that I know of that I can make this better. Right. Um, and that was the point that I got back with the book 
Like I did 19 drafts, I did four full rewrites, and the last version that has gone out when I I you know read it front to back so many times now. Like there was I was like. I can't take anything else out and I can't add anything to it and I can't make anything clear. And I've written this whole thing in a third grade reading level and I've added 106 hand-drawn images into this. There's nothing else I can do. And if it does not succeed, that's fine. Yeah. But it will not be for lack of effort. Hey guys, love that you're listening to the podcast. If you ever want to have the video version of this, which usually has more effects, more visuals, more graphs, you know, drawn out stuff, sometimes it can help hit the brain centers in different ways. You can check out my YouTube channel, it's absolutely free. Go check that out if that's what you are into. And if not, keep enjoying the show. Let me ask you this then, what would be considered success for this book launch? It'll be successful the moment I step on stage. I genuinely believe this. Like truly, I'll have one by the time that it happens because I I know what I feel like when I walk on stage and I have done everything in my power. Mm. Everything, not some of the things or most of the things, but there is nothing else that I can conceive of yeah. to make this better. And then at that point, if any, like, then the, the chips will fall where they are and I will control the controllables. And so that's, that has, that has helped me get through like some of the, the anxieties and things like that that happened earlier on in my career around these types of things. Yeah. But the whole, like the reason I have the outwork yourself that like give yourself a stack of undeniable proof that you are who you say you are. Like if I say that I will, I will do my job, then I will not make, I will make sure that I have done everything in my power, which also means, and this is the underlying thing is that it means I can't do a lot of stuff. And that's the, that's the real cost of excellence is all the things that you want to try that you can't do because excellence has a huge price tag associated with it, which is how much time you have to put into one thing. Totally. And you actually gave this example when it comes to writing a world-class book there. Yeah. I think the analogy you shared was like, you know, there's a difference between like a 7.5 star and a 9.5 star yeah. book or whatever it is. It's like a hundred X more work. Yeah. Right. What, what was the analogy? Yeah. There? I mean, it's, it's exactly that. Like, to go from a you know like from a five to a seven is like twice the work. To go from a seven to a nine is like a hundred times the work. Yeah. It's so much more work. It's an asymptote when it comes to yeah. work and excellence. It's a power loss. Yeah. But yeah. but the difference like but the difference between a nine and a half book and a nine point nine book on Amazon is the difference between you having one book that you can retire on for the rest of your life. Like the offers book in sales, I think does around three hundred thousand a month. Which is crazy good. Yeah. as a book. Yeah. As a book. That, that's your take, wild. right? Huh? That's your take. No, right? that's not my take. That's, that's sales. That's that, revenue, yeah, yeah. right? Then Amazon yeah. has his has his way with it. Um <laughs> and takes the vast majority of it. But yeah. po point being is like for the vast majority, I think it is about a million bucks a year. Yeah. Net. Great. Um but for the vast majority of people, like that I think is actually kind of encouraging. Is like you can put an unbelievable amount of work into one thing mm -hmm. and make it so good that it will pay you for the rest of your life. Like you don't yep. Like you could work a job, you could have a career, you could do all these things, but like if you build one amazing product that people will consistently buy and tell their friends about, you don't have to work again. And I think that like understanding that I've now applied, and honestly the offers book was the first, probably the biggest real life example I had where I could control every variable. Like yep. in a business you can't control every variable. But in, and even in like a tech product, I'm not the coder or whatever, yep. like I was like, I can code every page of this. I did the drawings, I did the audible, mm. I wrote the words, I designed the cover, like, everything. Yep. And so I can make sure that it's excellent from my perspective. And then hopefully they, the audience will agree. I love it. And, and that uh, acquisition.com slash leads, is that going to be an evergreen page or is it going to disappear at some point? Oh, I mean, it'll always reroute to probably something about the books. So okay. yeah, acquisition.com forward slash leads. Got it. Let me ask you this. 
I think for hundred million dollar offers, that book is very lindy. And what I mean by that for the audience is that, you know, it stands like how to win friends and influence people. It's been around for over a hundred years. It's going to be around for another hundred years. I think your book is written that way for that one. I think leads might be a little more difficult because you might be talking about, no, no, you've written it lindy. Dude, that's why it was so hard. There you go. Think about, I mean, like I had to, the, so, so to give context, leads has been probably 10 times the work of offers. Like, and it was because I had to rewrite it so many times and, and, and thinking about what topics I was going to get into and what topics I wasn't going to get into. And then how, at what level do I chunk up or chunk down, uh, from tactics around advertising, mm -hmm. right? Uh, so explaining the concepts, like I call it the core four, but there's only four things you can do to let other people know about your stuff. You can message people one-on-one -on -one who, you know, so it's warm reach outs. You can message people one-on-one -on -one who you don't know. That's cold reach outs. Mm -hmm. You can post one to many to people who know you, which is. Uh, posting content and you can post one to many to people who don't know you which is running paid ads that's it that's all you can do there's nothing else and if you're not doing those things then people won't find out about your stuff and so the platforms change the principles remain the same and so that was the but like i had to cover platforms media formats placements targeting mm -hmm. cold emails cold calls dms like I, there were so many <coughs> things that i had to cover in one book i will i will probably never bite off so much again yeah. in terms of narrowing the scope of the book. But now that I did for this, it really, the, the problem set that this book answers is literally just one step in the funnel, which is a lead is a person that you can contact. That is the definition of lead, as I define it. An engaged lead is a person you can contact who has shown interest in the stuff you sell. And the entire point of this book is to get someone from a person you can contact to get them engaged. Got it. That is it. That is the whole problem of the entire book. And then like, and that's it. And it, it self-destructs. <laughs> it self-destructs. Yeah. You got offers, you got leads. Can you yeah. talk about the next one? It's, it's I won't three, share right? the name yet. Yeah. Okay. yeah. But, uh, but it's green. <laughs> it's green. All right. You got It'll it. be a green book. <laughs> purple, purple, wait, blue, yeah. purple, green. Okay. Purple, blue. Purple, blue. Okay. Got yeah. it. Got it. Got it. Um, dude, I, just for the audience to know, it's typically when you write a book, it's usually five to seven drafts, right? And when I, when my editor first told me that, it's like, oh, come on, I'll be done in one draft, right? No, it's seven on my end. You did 19. That's that's way more. And it sounds like you rewrote a couple of times too. Four full rewrites, like end-to-end -end rewrites. That's crazy. I, I think I just give up. It was, but, um, it, was very, it was really hard. Yeah, but the work needs doing. Um, and I'll tell you what my editor said when I would get to these points where I would just like throw out my hands and be like, dude, I don't care. How I don't need to make the money. I, I don't like whatever, you know. You're close to giving up a couple of times. Oh, for sure. Yeah. I mean, like, you know, everybody has bad days. Yeah. And he, he, he said that he gave me this visual that like just like seared into my mind. He was like, there's a 17 year old kid in Pakistan who has a goat who's going to be sleeping with this book under his pillow. He's like, do it for him. Wow. And I was like, I was like, all right, that's good. So we get back and we. And, and we, you know, I was like, dude, they can figure this part out. And he's like, no, they can't. Yeah. He's like, you'll sell the book no matter what. And he's like, but they won't get it. Mm. And then, I was, so then it's like back to the drawing board. How can I rethink through this framework so that I can make it yeah. easy and then make the visual match the words and make it under third grade and all the way through was tough. Dude, I mean, that just goes to show you too, because earlier you talked about your mission around the, the education piece, right? Yeah. And sometimes no matter how strong your mission is, you start to waver a little bit, right? Yeah. And you need heroes like your editor to come and yeah. like, oh, recalibrate. Yeah. Yeah. This one's interesting. So the guy I had lunch with today, um, we had been in these masterminds before and in our mid-20s or so, it's like, yeah, tactics. You need a dopamine hit. right. Oh, that feels good, right? <laughs> split um, test. Yeah, split test. You know, there's this new channel over here. You got to yeah. talk to this person. But then as we get older, it's like, no, no, no. It's not about the tactics. 
it's just about hiring good people, right? Yeah. Like, is there anything you want to, I mean, I, I thought it'd be good to chat about with you here because after they read the books, sure, they'll pick up the strategies, the tactics, yeah. but really once they get at a certain level, it's like. Yeah. I mean, it's all about who. You know, I mean, there's that, the title was that book, Who Not How. Yep. I mean, it kind of summarizes the entire concept in the title. Um, you, I think you and I have had this discussion, but like you can, you can sit in on a group of entrepreneurs, listen to the discussion for 60 seconds and know how much money they make within a rough, a rough estimate mm -hmm. or what level of the business that they're working, if they're employees, like where they, where they sit on the org chart, um, because of what level of conversation they're having. And so at the highest level, you're talking about allocation of resources. That's mm -hmm. all it is. It's just capital and human allocation. Yep. Um, and you know, one level maybe below that would be uh, human, like human capital, which yep. is how are we going to attract talent? How are we going to train talent? How are we going to get compounding returns on talent? Uh, because you know, I, I like the saying, but um, you're just one great hire away from all of the money that you want. Yep. Uh, but the thing is, is that I think the catch of that that ism is that you have to become the type of person that that person wants to work for. Totally. And that's, that's, that's the hard part. Yeah. That's like, sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah of course. Uh, what's his name? Tim Cook, uh -huh. right, of Apple. He could he could probably grow your business, but he wouldn't work for you. <laughs> yeah, yep, yep, yep. And so like that has been always at the forefront of Layla and I's mind. Is, and that's part of, of what we do with the brand stuff, which is we want the brand to stand for things that, because we're, we're just as aggressively advertising at a tactical level, we're more aggressively advertising from a transactions perspective for the talent we put in portfolio companies. So we place talent, I mean, a few times a week. I mean, we have mm -hmm. three, four leadership positions a week that we fill in our portfolio companies compared to how many deals we do at the portfolio level. Um, and so, and that's the, that's the highest return on capital that we have is buy someone, and I say buy just in the capital term, yep. um, buy talent for 200,000 a year, make 20 million a year. Yep. No brainer. Great trade, right? Yeah. And, I, and one of the big, one of the big misnomers, I think that one of the biggest mistake entrepreneurs make, myself included, when I was earlier on, is that I didn't understand the difference between A and B talent. You can pay A talent thirty percent above market and get ten x the output, and like there's no sense in ever paying below market, in my opinion, because you just don't get. You can get so much more for the for the extra premium that totally. you pay that it's one of the best. It's like the best best bet in Vegas. Yep. You know what I mean? The best trade you can make is that premium to bring the the right person in that's ten times more effective. Yep. You know, have you heard of the the Keith Raboy? Um, he has this expression about barrels versus bullets. Mm -hmm. So the concept here, it, this guy was, um, I think he was like a COO of of Square or Block, whatever you want to call yeah. it. He's high up at PayPal. But anyway, so what he said was like, look. In an organization, you need barrows. These are going to be the ones that you give them a problem or mm -hmm. like something, and they'll just solve it, right? Yeah. And then the bullets, like they will do what you tell them to do, but you should always hire a barrel whenever you meet a barrel. And that's kind of what you're saying here. Mm -hmm. And to me, like, I, I, I love playing poker, right? Like I'm a gambler at heart, <laughs> but in, in like, in business, it's like unfair. It's like, yeah. you make this hire, it's like upside is unlimited. Well, right? I mean, it's gotten to the point now where we will, like we interview, we basically have open interviews. Yeah. So if we see someone who's incredibly talented, we will hire them without really having a clear position yeah. for them yet. And like, yeah. it, I'm saying that's a bit, that's if we have an incredibly talented person, like we had someone yeah. recently um, who was an exceptional sales director, had huge experience, was an ex-CEO, like all this great stuff, great value fit. Um, and one of our portfolio companies we're about to uh, you know, make the recommendation that you should take this person. Um, and they were like, we don't, we don't think we want to do it. Um, and so we hopped on the phone and we we're like, you're wrong. Um, 
like we have a lot more context on this. You should yeah. do it. And it ended up somebody from like their outside had said, you shouldn't do it. And they had no, that person uh, had no context. Yeah. And they were like, we actually wanted to hire him, but we didn't trust ourselves, which by the way is huge part for entrepreneurs is like you make one bad hire and then you think, I can't hire people. Like you're going to make mistakes. It's part of the game. You get better and better at pattern recognition. And so this person had talent. It was clear. Yeah. And so we were like, just so you know, we're hiring him no matter what. And so we're either going to put him in your company or yeah. putting him in somebody else. And they were like, okay, yeah, yeah, no, no, we want him. Yeah. And so it's like, I think that's the level of talent is like, you should feel FOMO when you're talking to the person. Yeah. And here's the other litmus test that I love. I got this from Layla. If you are not learning on the interview from the candidate about the thing that they're supposed to take over, you shouldn't hire them. That's because it means that you know more than them, which means that you're required for them to be successful, yep. which means that they need you and you know, you don't get leverage. Yep. That, dude, that's way better. So I used to use this Larry Page proxy. Um, so he, he would just get bored on all these interviews, right? Yeah. So, you know, one of the founders of Google. And, and he would be like, yeah, so like, tell me about something you're passionate about. Okay, great. You're going to teach me for seven minutes so he can learn something. Yeah. Layla's is even better. Yeah. Yeah. Because yeah. if you think about from a from a chunked up example, an organization grows if the not if the cumulative knowledge base of the company grows. Mm -hmm. And so if you bring somebody in who you have the complete you have their entire complete knowledge set about whatever the subject matter is, yep. then the organization doesn't grow. Just as simple as that. Yep. And if you are the smartest person in your business, then it means that the business will be capped by your brain. Yep. If you have four other people who have huge uh, trench knowledge then I see it as this like in my head I see it as this Christmas tree where like if you have four like this the peak goes way above because you have this wider wider top mm -hmm. so the peak is way way higher whereas if you're the single brain at the top the peak is the top of your head yeah so what, that's like how I visualize very it. small Christmas tree yeah very yeah. small Christmas tree exactly yeah. Dude, no presents that's that's good um so actually we have a couple minutes left here but the Layla conversation is going to be really focused on talent acquisition because that that is the game so um, she's anyway. a G at it. She's a savage. I mean, speaking of savages, so so a yes, both of you are savages um, in a good way, obviously. But B, when you find this talent, right? Like I tell people, I, I tell my staff, it's like, dude, you know, and if you have that feeling, that little gut feeling, yeah. you pull the trigger. You don't wait. Yeah. You don't wait that long. Yeah, because the like, next person they interview with will hire them. Yeah. Totally. So you, you'll do it on the spot sometimes. We don't do, I mean, we don't, we still follow a process, but yep. we, we do 24 hour turnarounds to move Got things it. forward. There you go. Yeah. yeah. But usually your, your turnarounds like. We try and do, we try and do everything one day apart. If okay. we, like, we always try to do that. Like Understood. we have really good metrics around HR. Like our cost to fill is way below industry average. Our time to fill roles yep. um, is like 22 days versus wow. industry average is much higher. Yeah. Um, our two-sided fit at 90 days, uh, which is one of our key metrics is that the, the person above the person and the person both say that it was a perfect match mm. 90 days later. Two-sided fit. I yeah. like that. You guys came up with that one too? Uh, well, director of HR did. Oh, and that was okay. because she came from Audax, a uh, private equity firm. And so yeah. she was director of people there. Yeah. And so on the interview, she was teaching, a, a, she gave all these metrics that yeah. I didn't like time to fill. And I was like, I should, why have I never tracked this? Like, yeah. that's so smart. Yeah. And she's like, what's the cost to fill? And yeah. here I am thinking, I was like, oh yeah, I'm this big metrics guy. I know the cost to acquire customer, CPM, CPL, all these yeah. things. And she's, and she's like, oh, you don't know what your cost to fill was. And I was yeah. like, wow, like such an idiot yeah. myself. Yeah. And so that's why, like, that's why you need really smart people around yeah. you because like I learn from, from her all the time. You should feel like an idiot when you're talking to high caliber prospects. About their subject. Yeah. Yeah. I love it. Cool. You know, so I'm going to go back to a story here because um, we have a guest question here. But we were eating lunch one time and your order was 
give me four chicken breasts. Yeah. So <laughs> tell us about the. I've seen the, the the video you have with the ice cream and all that. How how is your diet like? What is the question here from the, my buddy is um, what is Alex's fitness routine aside from what he has said and, oh, and diet from, as, diet as well? Yeah, um, like right now I haven't worked out in like three or four weeks, um, which is not as common for me. But I go through seasons. Um, I would say like I didn't I didn't miss uh, more than a week of working out for like sixteen years. Wow. Um, and then I in my old age, um, you know, I'm crossing 19 years of training now. Um, so I've like, for everyone who's like the entrepreneurs who like all of a sudden decide to like start getting into fitness and then mm-hmm. they start lecturing people when they've only been doing, working out for like two years. Yeah. Like I read the book and the article and I know the guy who wrote it. And I know how he makes his money and he, you're not seeing the whole truth, but mm. that's okay. Uh, Wait, there, which article are you referring to? Oh, I'm just saying like, okay. In general, in general, in general, like whatever that thing is that you're like really obsessed about right yeah, now, yeah, it's because yeah. you understand it very like yeah. I'm all keto. I'm intermittent fasting. Yeah. I do high carb, you know, high carb or I only do vegan or I like whatever make believe thing yeah. you have. Like there's a few things that matter and everything else is just preference. You yeah. know what I mean? And so I don't know if this is an evolism, but like if you can't do it for a decade, don't do it for a day. Um, and so there's definitely been seasons where I'll train harder. Uh, but overall, I do resistance training because it's the number one thing for you know longevity, maintaining bone mass, et cetera. Um, and then from a health perspective, it just comes down to calorie intake from a body aesthetics and then making sure that you have the vitamins that you need and micronutrients. Yeah. But like for most people in the developed world, we don't normally have vitamin deficiencies and we usually don't have mineral deficiencies. Um, again, that clinic that you go to where they do the blood work and they can have you chew on something and then spit it out and it does pink and then you take a supplement and then it's blue. Like you have to understand that these are also businesses. Like I come from the health and fitness world. Like mm-hmm. I think there's, there's games behind these things. Um, and so I try to keep things as simple as possible. I eat two pounds of meat a day. That's how I get my 200 grams of protein in. Yep. That is very easy for me to do. And then I have dessert in excess of my calories to hit my goal. If I want to lose weight, I eat less dessert. If I, if I want to maintain weight, I eat the same amount. If I want to gain weight, I'll add other calories to my other meals that have meat in them. So rather than just meat, I'll have meat and pasta or meat and rice, whatever. Um, But training has been progressive overload on resistance training, meaning weights and machines and plate loaded machines for almost two decades. Is there anything else? I I, I think you probably, my guess here is that you started out and then you tried all the things. It's like, no, let's just simplify it to these and these work. Do you do anything around... Anything else that's strange, like preventative healthcare? People are like, oh yeah, the MRI scans, all this type of stuff. I don't. Maybe I will later, but yep. right now I, I don't. I've um I focused. I mean, all the things that I just mentioned. So like, I did kettlebell only training. I did barefoot training. I did exclusively swim sprint training. Um, I've done high intensity interval training. I've done um like all strongman style training. I've I was a competitive powerlifter for five years. Um, and now people would probably consider me more of like a bodybuilder esque in terms of training style and aesthetics. And so like I have done a lot of different styles of training. And when it comes to diet, I did the warrior diet when you ate one big meal at night. I've done intermittent fasting. I've done alternate day fasting. I've done um I've done keto. I've done uh all um the opposite of keto. So like high high carbs, super low fat, high, high protein. I've done zone. I've like I have done them and it was because in my first decade of fitness, you hop on all of these trains because part of it is like you want to experiment, you want to learn, you want to see how you react. And part of it is because you believe the magic, right? There's something different. Mm -hmm. But there's a few fundamental truths and they all come down to physics, which is just like law of thermodynamics. Like there's a certain amount of energy that you consume. And if you have less than that, you will lose fat, period. It will get taken from energy stores. Like, well, what about 
uh, starvation mode and things like that. Like there was a Minnesota starvation study where they had starved people for like months, no food. And the biggest decrement they saw in basal metabolic rate was 30%. And so that means that when you're truly starving, your BMR goes to 70%, which I mean is significant, but it's also not like, like the women that I used to, you know, have at my gym, like, I think I'm in starvation mode. I was like, I think you just snack. <laughs> you know, like, yeah. I was like, if you want to see starvation mode, go to Africa. Like none of them have cellulite because they are starving. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Like, you know, we use these words, but like in order to truly get that level of decrement and decrease in your, you know, BMR, uh, you have to really be restricting for a very long period of time. And most people don't even track what they eat. And so like, if you don't track what you eat, it's kind of like the guy with the opinion. Like, I don't, I don't care. Like right. you don't even have data. So, and the, the thing with any of these, these, you know, diets or at least approaches is you have a certain calorie intake that you maintain your body weight at. The thing that fudges this is that people are very bad at measuring what they take in, like what they eat. And they're, but that's even, uh, that's still easier than measuring what your output is because you have non-exercise activity that really, so like if I'm, if I'm bobbing my foot or I'm mm -hmm. chewing more gum or I'm taking the stairs more, or I'm cleaning the house, like those few hundred calories a day over a week or over a month add up a lot. Um, and so usually what happens is when you get older, your metabolism doesn't necessarily decrease nearly as much as people's activity decreases. And so they think that their metabolism is really slow, but it's like when you were 20, you were in two rec leagues and you had to walk cross campus uh, in college and you were walking three miles a day and you didn't even notice it, <laughs> right? With a backpack on, that yep. was like 25 pounds, yep. right? Like it was rucking now, yep. but like you just had a backpack as you were a student. Yep. And so it's just like, we have these perspective shifts that have to happen, but there's a few things that happen. Progressive overload, meaning you lift more weight over time, works. That builds muscle, yeah. right? Uh, protein increase builds and maintains muscle. Hormones build and maintain muscle. Calorie surpluses help maintain anabolic states. Calorie deficits, you lose tissue. You go into catabolic states, period. That's it. The rest of it is preference. Yeah. Look, I, I think this all wraps well together because it's the reason I bring this up too is because you simplified it. And just like business, it's comes down to people, right? Yeah. A lot of blocking and tackling. Same thing with this, the health stuff too. It's like we're, there's a lot of distractions. Oh, there's this new diet over here. Oh, should we like cold plunge or should we like infrared mm -hmm. sauna? Like should we, I don't know, blue light blocking, whatever, right? Yeah. Um, but it just comes down to the simple stuff. And I talk about this just for context. So this is for you guys. You can add it back in. Um, is This is per purely from the perspective of aesthetics. Yeah. If you want to maintain a certain amount of body mass with a certain percentage of fat and a certain percentage of muscle, those are the only things that matter. Um, the other stuff, it, it gets into you know magic and and all the stuff that I, I don't I don't partake in. And what's interesting is like I don't talk about fitness much, um, and it's mostly because I am so. I, I mean, it's been twenty years, so like I'm I'm I've been in I've been knowing about fitness for longer than I've known about business for context. Yeah. Um, and so I also did that professionally for a very long time. And a lot of like the the YouTube world and like the influencer world or people that follow me don't know like they see that I'm quote jacked, but like. I wrote the plans that 4,000 gyms use. Like you've mm -hmm. probably used my stuff. And so, you know, people are like, oh, this guy has such great thinking. But then if I make a comment about food, then everyone feels entitled to an opinion because they have a body. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> right. So they, but like they, how many people have you helped change like their physiques? Probably not many. Mm -hmm. um, and you probably can't even change your own. So like, it's kind of like in, in, in business where like no one wealthier than you will take shots at you. Yeah. 
no guy who's ever been more jacked than me has ever said anything negative to me totally about fitness stuff yeah. it's only like laptop warriors and whatnot and so like again my my level of care is so much more passionate about helping people make money to like sustain their families and whatnot um and it's i don't have a lot of passion anymore around fitness and maybe it's been two decades and maybe that's why um but yeah, to me, it's the, the equation's been simplified. And the thing is, is that business, I remember this, there was a moment when I stopped reading T Nation. And mind you, that's not where I got my source of content, but I'm just saying like- T Nation? It was like back in, I mean, back in the, <laughs> like the early 2000s. Okay. Uh, There's like all these articles for like lifting and nutrition yeah. and stuff. And I remember there was a day when I was like, I think I get it. Like I, I human bodies haven't changed. And so I, I have a sufficient amount of knowledge to- do all the things that I need to do and to help other people do what they need to do. And so my consumption of new stuff dropped dramatically because everything at this point is such a small increment in terms of changes in physique and performance and all that stuff that like sleeping well, eating your protein and working out are yep. still so big compared to everything else that it just doesn't matter. And the reason I think I got into to business and I've stayed and I think I will continue to be interested in business, whereas I, my, my love of fitness started to wane, is because business changes all the time. Yep. So like bodies haven't changed, but business and the market changes all the time. And I think that's why I love it. Best game ever. All right, last question for you. Your coach is 80-year-old Alex, yeah. if I'm not mistaken. Um, yeah. What are some things that 80-year-old Alex has told you recently? Sometimes you have to give time time. I mean, most of the themes of my 85-year-old self like if there was like a, a handful of themes that our conversations lead toward. Um, one is like, this doesn't matter. Like it's going to work out either way. And so it's me, it's like basically just zoom out. So that's probably one. Um, a second theme is just around patience, which is like, I think you just need to stay busy. I don't think you need to do anything about this. Mm. So that's the second one. I think um, redefining problems is not problems. Like my, my undefeated heavyweight champion of the world solution is decide something isn't a problem. <laughs> okay, I like that. Yep. Like, like, how do I solve this? It's like, what if I just decided it wasn't a problem to begin with and kept living my life? And that, a lot of times when you're 85, I feel like you have more of that perspective. It's like, yeah. that's just not, I'm just not, I'm going to decide that's not a problem. Yeah, no fucks given. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so I would say th those are three. Um, but dude, patience is by far the biggest one. Um, and, and, and I'll give the fourth. Um, embracing uncertainty. Because... I, and many of us, want a guarantee from a world that doesn't give them. Mm. It's like, I want to know that this is going to work, which is such a fallacious thought at the onset, because if I actually knew beyond a shadow of a doubt that something would happen, I would lose all interest because then it would be boring. Yep. It's like having the cheat codes and playing a video game. It's good for like five seconds, and then you realize it's not totally. a challenge at all. And yep. so like, I have this desire that if it actually were met, would be the ultimate undoing of my desire. So it's just a complete smokescreen that I've made up in my head. And so my 85 year old self just, I would say like most of the time it just points. He doesn't even have to say anything. He's just like, and you're like, yeah. <laughs> but All it's right. crazy though, how powerful it is because I don't have, like if I had a, a therapist or a coach or something, I'd have to spend 90% of my time trying to give context to the problem that I know the answer to. And I'm just not doing it. Like we give significantly better advice to other people than we adhere to ourselves. That's the paradox you're talking yeah. about. Solomon's paradox. Yep. Yeah. And so if we can harness our own ability to give better advice with the absolute context that we have on our situation and the aligned incentives that we have, that no one else can have as aligned incentives for us as we are, then I think it unlocks a, another level of quote coaching that's been 
tremendously helpful for me. And I would say that I haven't, like my sessions with Solomon, even though it's me, but I just call it Solomon um, in my head. Um, sometimes they're really long and sometimes they're short because sometimes like things are working and I'm good. And so I kind of see it as like the, uh, the therapist or the performance coach that is on demand. Like if I need him, he's there and I have a blocked, you know, hour in my calendar every Monday. It's the first thing I do every Monday um, is have my time with Solomon. But it's rare that I take the full hour. Um, it's usually between five minutes yeah. and 30 minutes is and usually what. Are like, you sitting around, you walk in? Oh, no, I, I'm at my computer. Got so it. I actually do a chat back and forth and I go from him to me, him to me, him to me. And I type out all the yeah. responses because I think even typing out what my question is, you even like, like many problems, if you can properly ask, ask the right question, that's 90% of the solution is asking the right question yeah. or precisely stating the problem you're trying to solve. Yeah. Um, and so that process helps me solve most of the issues that come up that aren't really issues to begin with. I love it. Well, I know we can go on forever, but what we're going to end it right here. So yeah. what is the best way for people to find the book? Yep. And I mean, just Google yeah. Alex Ramosi, right? <laughs> yeah. How do you find the book? Yeah, you can go to, um, I mean, you can go to Amazon, but if you want to uh, go to acquisition.com forward slash leads, uh, and we also have training and courses and other materials that are all free, no opt-in on the site at acquisition.com. Um, and if you are a company and you have, you know, an EBITDA of a million, two million, five million, eight million, um, hit us up. You know, we're always looking for great founders who are looking for growth partners and cause that's, that's, that's what our day job is. <laughs> All right. I love it. Alex, thanks so much for doing this. Thanks for having me.